Hi, welcome. My name is Elijah Stevens. I'm the director of Simproof, a documentary about miracles with medical evidence. And today I'm interviewing Dr. Clay Jones. He was my professor at Biola, and he covered the topic of God and evil. Why does God e allow evil? And so, Dr. Jones, what, what got you into this field? Well, you, I, I think I, as I write in my book, Why Does God Allow Evil? I think I came into it exactly backwards. And what I mean by that is I think most people, uh, most Christians, let's say, uh, look around and they go, wow, why is the Lord allowing this evil or allowing that evil? And if they have the background or whatever, they say, you know, I'd, I'd like to write a book on this subject. Uh, that's not what happened to me. What happened to me is, as a matter of fact, when I was uh, a pastor at the original vineyard under John Wimber, uh, I started praying that the Lord would reveal to me the glory that awaits us in heaven forever. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, 17 through 19, that he'd reveal to us the hope that we've been called to and the riches of his glorious inheritance. Uh, and, and that became the only thing I really wanted to teach. And I mean, I, I just wanted to teach on that. I didn't, of course, because you any pastor has to teach more than about the glory that awaits us in heaven right. forever. You can't just teach on that. But that became my favorite thing to study. And for years, I studied who we are in Christ and what the change is and that mm -hmm. we've been, we're not just sinners saved by grace, but we've been born again, uh, filled, by the, filled with the Holy Spirit and so on. Well, after some years, uh, I started studying. I thought, you know, this has been wonderful, but it occurred to me I should study where we came from. What was my, what's the non-Christian's condition? What is the lost's condition before they become Christian? Christians. And so I started studying human evil and I studied, mm -hmm. spent many years studying genocide and mass murder because those were about as uh, human evil uh, mm -hmm. like as you're going to get. And as I studied and researched the glory that awaited us in heaven forever and what God was doing in our lives here, and as I studied where we came from, that we came from a, a well, frankly depraved and and when i use that term by the way you whether you use depraved or not we came from a very sinful state and by the way arminius agreed with that that we came from a very sin they were all born desperate sinners he would agree with calvin on that uh when i understood began to understand those two things and this is may shock some of your uh those watching you uh when i understood those two things the problem of evil just basically went away uh, mm. And I just didn't see the problem of evil anymore. And people talk about the problem of evil, and I go, I, I just don't see it. And uh, it wasn't that there were things I didn't need to learn on the way. In fact, it took me uh, 23 years to, to write my book, to actually get my book published from when I first started writing it. There were questions, to, specific questions to answer. But basically, like I said, I, I'd see people, hear people talking about this great problem of evil, this unanswerable problem of evil, and I'd say, I just don't see it. And, you know, it's been years and years and years now, and I, I'm, I'm sticking with it. Uh, I, I think we know why God allows evil. I think the Bible tells us. Mm -hmm. Well, let, let's go down this path. So you're studying about heaven, and then you start looking at social evils. <clears throat> let's say, the Nazis or, or the genocides. Um, could you describe what you're seeing um, at, let's say, seasons of history where evil is just unleashed on, on, on the earth? Yeah, you know, it's interesting when you use the word unleashed on the earth mm -hmm. because it it is true that, in a sense, I, I kind of see evil as always being 
right mm-hmm. there. I mean, it's always right there. But there are times where various philosophies, uh, and we're seeing that now, where various philosophies will come into play. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, for instance, at the turn of the 20th century, totalitarian Marxism, of course, was mm-hmm. an idea that unleashed a humongous, a gigantic amount of evil because they didn't have any problem with killing people that stood in their way. Well, you know, I mean, basically Marxism died a, an early death in, in the late 80s. Uh, and uh, now you're seeing a resurgence of it, which is strange. Mm-hmm. But, but with Darwinism, that has opened the door to evil because once, if Darwinism is true, and I'm going to be very blunt because, as you know, Elijah, it's the way I tend to roll. Uh, if Darwinism is true, and by that I mean if there is no God that created the universe, and if we are just the result of random particles, and then one sure. day we're going to die and and be oblivionated, enter oblivion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't have a. I don't see why men shouldn't marry men or women women, or why you shouldn't. Why it should be wrong to have sex with your German shepherd, for that matter. I, I just don't. If there's no God, anything goes. And so what I'm seeing uh, in our society now is an unleashing by a certain false belief system. When I was a boy in the United States, I mean, we were in a basically Christian environment. In fact, I'd go out witnessing with my brother at parks and various places. And our biggest problem is we'd go up to somebody and say, you know, I want to tell you about, you know, Jesus. And they'd say, well, I'm already a Christian. Mm-hmm. And we would have to, we had a reply, our standard reply is, was standing in the garage doesn't make you a car and going to church doesn't make you a Christian. Uh, we had to have uh, right. little lines like that because everybody thought they would self-identify as being Christian. Now that's not true. Sure. Uh, but in the 60s and 70s, early 70s anyway, people, most people self-identified as being Christian. In fact, a Pew poll of just a few years ago said that about 71% of people, now it's decreasing, 71% of Americans self-identifies as being Christians. But, but so, yeah, we're seeing uh, as we're completely giving up uh, Christianity, and now we are definitely in a post-Christian culture here in the United States. And as a result, uh, people mm-hmm. don't know what a boy or a girl is, which I think that's uh, for anybody that has eyes, pretty obvious. We don't know what a man or a woman is. And we have this man who, you know, has transitioned, who is beating the women in swimming terribly, uh, just trouncing them, setting new records. Well, this is a result of, of uh, a philosophy uh, allowing people to do this kind of thing. And it's really horrific. Hmm. Um, so this is something that I struggle with. Um, where does social structure fall into the amount of evil in the world versus, hey, we're all sinners. We all do so- sinful stuff. Um, is there like social structures that are evil? Well, that's a great question, and I'm glad you asked it. I think it's the first time anybody's asked me that in an interview, and I've been interviewed a lot lately in the last year <laughs> and a half, especially with COVID. It seems like yeah. anyway, uh, but but <clears throat> uh, the United, the founders of the United States had something very very right. Now, a lot of them mm-hmm. were deists; uh, they were not Christians, sure. but they had a lot of Christian influence on them. And here's the key: they did not think that humans were innately good. And that's gigantic. They did not think that people were born tabula rasa or that they were born innately good. And so they set up our government with 
you know, different with three branches of government, which would then counteract each other. That mm-hmm. if one branch of government started getting too greedy, then the other branches of government, you know, could, could kind of rein it in. And you had this, and this is a result of people being innately sinful, and they really are at least innately selfish, and and that's worked very well for us. But uh, as we are, as a, us as a society, are getting away from that, as we are moving away from any kind of foundation, and 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 the biggest difference between liberals and conservatives, by far, is the future, uh, the view of humankind, and and I and if you interviewed liberals. Um, everyone from AOC to whoever, uh, the other members of the squad, you're going to find that they believe that humans were born tabula rasa, blank Mm -hmm. slates, ready to be written on by the environment. Mm -hmm. That's why they always blame the environment for everything. That's why you blame it's the gun's fault. Uh, It's not, and and everybody that commits heinous crimes, it's really not their fault Mm -hmm. because they were born tabula rasa and the environment has shaped them into being bad people. But if you believe that people are not basically good or born tabula rasa, if you believe that they're innately selfish, which I think is easy to demonstrate in almost any particular way, uh, if you believe that humans are innately selfish, that, that you're going to change the laws. Because if you realize that you need to have strong police force, because if you don't, and we're seeing this because the liberals have gotten their way for the last couple of years, if you don't have a strong police force, the, the bad guys, people who are inclined to do evil will will do evil. Uh, if you do not, uh, you know, I mean, if you when it comes to welfare programs and stuff, if you sit there and say, well, you know, it's really not their fault. It's it's the environment's mm-hmm. fault. You're not going to motivate people to work by saying if you don't work, you don't get to eat. And mm-hmm. Paul uh, said, if anyone will not work, let him not eat that you have to. If people don't have an incentive because of their selfishness, they won't do good things. So anyway. Uh, the environment is hugely important, uh, or excuse me, social structures are hugely important in responding to human selfishness. And one, one last thing, I could say a lot about this, and maybe we'll talk about it a lot more, but, but a woman wrote to me and she says, if you want to see the sinful nature of babies, the selfish baby nature of babies, uh, put two babies on the floor next to each other and give them one toy and see what happens. And uh, <laughs> yeah. I think that's really true. I think it's it's really naive to think that humans are innately good or innately mm-hmm. tabula rasa. People, and this is not that complex. It's people are, are naturally, I'm. it's me before you, my family before your family, my government before your fa- government, my team before your team. Mm-hmm. And that's just selfishness. And uh, uh, to mm-hmm. ignore that and to say, no, no, it's, you're, you're basically a good and selfless or altruistic person, that's just mm-hmm. all utterly false. Okay. Um, as you're talking, I'm thinking about, let's say, the Darwinian who says, yeah, I agree. People are fundamentally selfish. That's how our genetics are hardwired. What makes Christianity different in your mind in how it talks about sin versus innate and self selfishness through biological and sociological hardwiring? That's another great question. I don't think I've been asked that one either. Uh, so there you go. I, I'll tell you this. Uh here's one place that Darwin it, it's weird. Darwinism has been terribly destructive to human society because again if mm-hmm. if there is no god and darwin darwin is as richard dawkins said about darwin he said it was very difficult to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist until darwin came along mm-hmm. uh, so darwinism has done a lot of damage but there's one thing that actually darwinism and christianity agree on 
And that is that people are going to act in their own best interest. Uh, mm -hmm. and that otherwise known as they're going to be selfish. They're going to take care of mine and uh, mine and uh, me and mine, and we're going mm -hmm. to take care of me and mine first. So it's interesting because Darwinism on that point uh, actually agrees with Christianity that that's the fundamental nature of humankind. And that's another problem why it's so silly, this this liberal tabula rasa, no, 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 nobody's really selfish. It's, it's just ridiculous. But anyway, so yeah. And by the way, communism, Marxism is built on the idea that if everybody, you know, had everybody had everything in common, that they'd just be good to each other. And Engels said at one point, he says, once communism has taken over the world, a woman will be able to walk down any city street unmolested. Well, that's dumb. Uh, and and it's it's incredibly mm -hmm. naive because it just thinks that the only problem is 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 uh, you know mm -hmm. that we have our goods all uniformly spread out. So I just think that, but it's interesting because I think on that point, Darwinism and Christianity are mm -hmm. are are very close together on just the basic situation of man, and that is that humans are not altruistic mm -hmm. by nature. Well, let's take it's the case that, um, you know, either people are sinful or they have this selfish nature. Um, some people see so much evil in the world, and I want you to define evil at, uh, before we go on, but they see so much evil, they go, I can't even believe a God exists when there's kids dying of cancer, when the Nazis are killing Jews and they're praying, God, you were your people, or I guess you know, outside of the Christian worldview and the Jewish worldview they were. And so what do you do with that? Like it, it's almost overwhelming the amount of evil in the world. Well, it is overwhelming. Yeah. And, and my answer to that is, and it's supposed to be overwhelming. You should be, you should be horrified by the amount of mm -hmm. evil that's in the world. In fact, uh, I make the case, and we can probably talk about this later because it's more towards the final conclusions of my whole position mm -hmm. on why God allows evil is that the the evil that is in the world is eternally valuable knowledge that it informs us of the horror of rebellion against God because all evil whether moral evil or natural evil can one way or another be traced back to the sin of Adam and Eve now uh uh, I mean, because when Adam and Eve, when they sin, they open the door for moral evil. But then once they sin, the Lord said, you know, because you've done this, uh, cursed is the ground because of you. In other words, God looked at planet Earth and he said, I curse you. And the question I like to ask people is what evil, what pestilence, what cancer, what COVID, what, you know, go on and fill in the blank, could not have been enabled from God looking, the Lord looking at planet Earth and saying, I curse you. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the, the origin in our world of moral and natural evil is God cursing the ground or human sinning and then God cursing the ground. Of course, humans, it, it's not all because of Adam and Eve. Humans do lots of things to injure each other and kill each other using their free will. Mm -hmm. rape and maim each other and and i mean people do things i mean especially in southern california we have people that start fires for the express purpose of just mm -hmm. trying to burn down as much in california as they can uh and we catch you know i mean so obviously it's not all adam and eve but in a sense it's still related because they're adam's kids <clears throat> excuse me so because we're all just adam and eve's kids and so um, yeah so when we start thinking about this Sometimes I hear you talk about it's not the problem of evil, it's the problems of evil. 
that you have to work through intellectually. Can you talk about why we need to take the problem of evil and break it apart into multiple problems and what those problems are? Yeah, uh, I think that's very important. And I don't, yes, exactly. Uh, well, first of all, we break evil down into two major categories. There's moral evil, uh, drunk driving, torture, murder, gossip, slander, you know, and so mm -hmm. on. Those are moral evils. Uh, and then there's natural evils, mold, cancer, tsunamis, death by natural causes are natural evils. And so right off the bat, you have natural evil and you have moral evil. And so there's two. Um, and mm -hmm. then there's the logical problem of evil. And that is to try and show that the belief in God is logically impossible. And if the logical problem of evil were to succeed, then indeed Christianity would be false. And the logical mm -hmm. problem of evil is put in a syllogism. If God is all good, and everybody's heard this, if God is all good, they would he would desire to prevent evil. If he's all powerful, he'd be able to prevent evil. But evil exists, so God is either not all good or not all powerful or doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. If, uh, as Lewis says, if the normal sense of those words were um, meant what they, you know, are, are correct, then indeed God would be, it would be impossible for God to exist, logically impossible. However, atheists have given up the logical problem of evil. They, they've essentially mm -hmm. wholesale, they've abandoned it on the whole. And the reason they've abandoned it, as one philosopher in the Oxford Handbook of Theological Philosophy put it, he says, you know, he says, the trouble is to point to any particular instance of evil, anyone at all, uh, you'd have to say that it would be impossible for God to have a morally justified reason for allowing it. And atheists have concluded, we just can't do that. We can't show that any particular kind of evil, for any particular kind of evil, that it would literally be impossible to, for God to have a morally justified reason for it. And because of that, that's it in a nutshell, because of that, people, philosophers, atheist philosophers have given up on the problem of evil. Well, then that brings us to the evidential problem of evil, which my book largely is, is, a, uh, is seeking to answer. Uh, and, uh, um, and that is, well, okay, we give up on the, the logical problem of evil. That's not going to work. Forget it. Uh, but what does it make sense that a good and loving God would allow all the evil that he allows in the world? And so there's the evidential problem of evil. And uh, that, like I said, that's what my my book, uh, Why Does God Allow Evil, is about. Is it's giving a theodicy or God's reasons for allowing all the evil that He allows, and and I think He has very good reason to allow all the evil that He allows. I I don't I don't have you know it all makes sense to me. And here's the phrase again, and it's eternally valuable knowledge because we're going to take this knowledge with us into eternity, uh, and it's and, and forever and ever and ever. And I think that's the that's valuable. And what's the knowledge that that guess what? Rebellion against God really hurts you. Don't do it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, so this is a question I think sometimes <clears throat> I wrestle with when it comes to the issue of God and evil. Why doesn't God protect us more? You know, I, I love that question. And I just did, in fact, in the Christian Research Journal, this latest issue of the Christian Research Journal, I just did uh, an article entitled The Four Types of Divine Hiddenness. Mm -hmm. uh, because, uh, and I won't mention his name, many people would know it. You'd certainly know his name, as would many of your listeners. But one day I was driving in to speak at a venue, uh, apologetics venue, with this well-known apologist, better known than me, uh, much better known, but we're driving in to speak, and he says, I don't see why God, yeah, okay, I get it, but I don't see why God doesn't show his power more often than he does. And he pointed to the Israelites uh, and said, 
obviously God did a lot of evil, you know, I mean, God did a lot of powerful things in front of them and they still rebelled. So it isn't true that God couldn't do more and have people still rebel. We literally, like I said, we're driving into the church parking lot and I didn't have time to answer uh, his question, but uh, just real quick. The first one is when it came to the Israelites in Egypt, when it came to God doing the plagues against them and then the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day, uh, there isn't the first type of, of divine hiddenness is called that God doesn't want to make his presence too obvious because if he made his presence too obvious, everyone would be fo forced to feign loyalty. But the first thing is, is when it came to Israelites and Egyptians during that time, there wasn't, you wouldn't find anybody that was an atheist. Mm -hmm. uh, so the first question kind of hiddenness is, is there a God at all? And right now that is since Darwin, especially that that's the big question. Is there a God at all? That's the first type, but that would not even have occurred to the Israelites or the Egyptians. The second type is, okay, if there is a God or gods, which God is the true God? Which one should we listen to? And that, and, and the Lord's bringing these plagues on Egypt. He couldn't just then bring them out of Israel and not do m many more miracles, would he? because otherwise, once Israel left Egypt, they could have said, it's another God that is delivering us uh, now. It's mm -hmm. another God that's coming to our aid. It is not the one that did the things in Egypt. It's another God because they were all polygamists at the time. Uh, and so the Lord needed a sense of continuity as is demonstrated by the, by mm -hmm. the cloud by the cloud and the pillar of fire. Uh, that's a, This is the same God that is doing this. Then the third and fourth senses are, is, is this God powerful enough to protect us? And now that was something that did become a big thing to the Israelites. Is he powerful enough? Because they go... You know, what are you doing? You brought us out in the desert here to kill us? I mean, are you not, you mm -hmm. know, and that that's also God's goodness and God's power. But anyway, so one more thing about that. When people say, mm -hmm. why doesn't God do more? The question is, how much more is he supposed to do? What's the standard? You know, where, where's the standard? Mm -hmm. And I think people go, well, it should be this or it should be that because I think it would be just great. I I think it would just be great if God God should have moved more powerfully or more directly. Uh, who sets the standard for how often God should move? You can't. How often he should reveal himself. Mm -hmm. uh, but And Jesus said, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks a sign and no sign will be given it. And he went on to say, basically, using the sign of Jonah, that would be his resurrection would be the sign. And that, But so people, when they say, well, he should make his power more evident. Well, Jesus says that those who want more evidence, actually, it's a sign of their wickedness and their adulterousness. Hmm. Okay. Um, so <clears throat> as you're working through this topic, you said heaven was the thing you started studying. What got you into that? And how did you go, hey, this makes all this pain worth this? Well, you know, it, it's funny. I actually read a book by a fellow named Needham uh, and uh, Christian, Do You Know Who You Are?, which I don't really recommend necessarily, but I got I gained a lot of it. And it was about how the, who the identity of the Christian really is. And that then made me start going, OK, now let's look into all of this. What's it, What's God doing for us as Christians? And I, I think in 1983, I started praying Ephesians 1, 17 through 19 about God giving us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in our knowledge of him, that the eyes of our hearts have been opened, that we know the hope that we've been called to, and I find seven hopes in scripture, mm -hmm. 
the riches of his glorious inheritance that he's giving us the kingdom and the surpassingly great power that's at work for us who believe. And I, I've been praying that prayer since like 1982. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's it's been a real life changer. But I, I just say, if anything, on why, I don't know, the Lord just laid it on my heart to start studying these things. And as I did study these things, I thought, you know, I need to I need to pursue this as to the end and, and mm -hmm. just really, really, really go with it. So what did you take away from your studies uh that that we're going to live forever and inherit the kingdom and this dwarfs all of our suffering here to insignificance mm -hmm. and 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 this is as logical as it gets paul says it in second corinthians 4 where he says this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison uh that that heaven will dwarf one of my lines is eternity will dwarf our suffering to insignificance. Um, and, and it, that's lo as logical as it gets. If we really are going to live forever and if it's going to be wonderful, if it's not going to be wonderful, then that becomes its own problem of evil. But if eternity is going to be wonderful, it, it logically dwarfs our suffering here to insignificance. We only live here a very short time. I mean, our three score and 10 or maybe four score, man, it's like, you don't get a lot more than that. And mm -hmm. uh, I, I, you know, I mean, but I'm going to live forever and ever and ever and ever. And the recognition of this makes my problems look small. And frankly, it makes me able to handle a lot of suffering because I go, I'm going to go home and be with Jesus soon. And I'm where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, uh, where the scripture says that we will drink again. The scripture says in Isaiah that uh, we will drink uh, aged wine and fatted meat. We're going to drink and eat the good stuff. Uh, I, and I think that's all true. Heaven is most compared to a banquet as anything in scripture. And so, uh, anyway, but just this, this, this appreciation that of the glory that's going to await us forever. And I find very few Christians are thinking about that. And people ask me, you know, what's the biggest, what do you, I think is the biggest problem in the Christian church hands down far and away. There's, it's not, there's not even a close second is very few people think about eternity. Uh, they don't want to think about eternity. Pastors don't teach on it. And I just ask your listeners to think, when's the last time you've heard an entire sermon on anything related to eternity or heaven? Mm -hmm. uh, and when I've asked audiences that, the answer is hardly ever. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, I mean, a lot of people can't even think of one. And that's, well, then how can you, you know, live for eternity, mm -hmm. uh, which is the name of my nonprofit, by the way, how can you live for eternity if you're going to just sit there and say, well, I'm just, you know, I'm, I mean, it's all about life here. And yeah, I know then when I die, there's this heaven thing. How can you do that? You can't. Mm -hmm. And so pastors need to talk about it more. Radio programs need to talk about it more. Christians need to meditate on it more. We need to think more about eternity, eternal life in Jesus. Well, this would be the pushback of someone like a Freud, and he would say, Clay, this is what's going on. You are projecting your desires onto reality. There's no sky god. There's no heaven. It's just wh what you think of of infinite pleasure. How do you respond to someone saying something like that? Well, you've given me an opportunity here because I have a book right here behind my shoulder entitled <laughs> Immortal, How the Fear of Death Drives Us and What We Can Do mm -hmm. About It. And what I've done is, is I answer that question. It's, it's it, I, anyway, I'm glad you brought it up. I, it answers that question. But one of the questions, one of the things it does is because atheists go, oh, well, you know, we're not like you. We, you Christians, you need a crutch. 
Christianity mm-hmm. is a crutch. You're getting, you know, you need to feel good that you're going to go to heaven and you're going to have eternal mm-hmm. life. Uh, and the truth of the matter is, um, when you see how atheists deal with it, uh, it, it's amazing. I call them mortality mitigation projects where they're trying to make death seem not so bad. And I'll just give you just two or three right off the top of my head. The first one is, is to say, well, you wouldn't want to go to heaven anyway. You wouldn't mm-hmm. want to go. You wouldn't want to live forever anyway. That's the first atheist approach. You wouldn't want to live forever anyway. It would suck the meaning out of life. I think that is perhaps the greatest example of sour grapes in the history of created beings. It really might be the greatest example of sour grapes. No, I wouldn't want to live forever anyway. Death's fine with me. You can take your eternity and and shove it. That's dumb. Uh, I'll tell you one thing that's because a lot of people are are into Buddhist philosophy, like mm-hmm. Sam Harris, atheist Sam Harris, live in the present, live in the now. But even Sam Harris admits, and I talk about this in my book, that can't go on forever. Sooner or later, the now is going to be filled with pain and suffering, and, and we're going to be on the verge of death or with the death of those we love. Um, or how about this one? And this is be- is actually hugely popular. Uh, you will uh, your Your individual existence is a delusion. You say, who in the world could possibly, Mm -hmm. what Westerner could possibly uh, say that your individual existence is a delusion? Well, Albert Einstein, for one, he said it straight out. He says, you know, I mean, we are caught in this delusion that we are actually, that we're all individuals, and this is a delusion of our consciousness. Uh, And this is, again, Buddhist, they're trying to answer this from a Buddhist perspective. But what I find again and again and again and again is atheists are coming up they're looking for crutches like crazy and think about what a, could you get anything stupider than saying our individual existence is a delusion but some of the brightest minds mm-hmm. in the history of bright minds like einstein said mm-hmm. yeah it is a, your your individual existence is a delusion so mm-hmm. uh anyway so atheists don't handle death well uh, there's a higher amount of suicide among atheists than there are among those who believe that there's a God. Uh, and uh, they're just as they're filled with depression. And interesting, one more thing, interesting thing is a lot of atheists say there's no better answer to the fear of death than Christianity. Sam Harris, atheist Sam Harris says, you know, he says, there's no better story to tell someone who's just lost a child that you're going to be together with them in heaven. He says, there's no better story. Uh Luke Fetty, atheist Luke Fetty, at, at, uh, at, you know, from Paris, he says, he says, Christianity turns out to be stronger than death. It gives us everything that we could hope for, uh, that we're not going mm-hmm. to just be some particles in the universe, but we're going to be reunited with our loved ones and we're going to live forever and ever and ever. It gives us everything that we hope for. Um, and so, and I quote these atheists on that too. So I, I think this is, you know, I mean, uh, Freud was a desperate man, really. Mm-hmm. And a lot of, you know, people, some psychiatrists now like Irving Yalom of uh, Stanford are coming out and going, he really was terribly afraid of death and needed to be uh, famous mm-hmm. uh, to compensate for his fear of death. Yeah. I think one thing I notice when people are addressing um, heaven is that they take the Christian view of heaven and start putting it in other religions. <clears throat> So they project on to, let's say, the New Age, a Christian version of heaven, or whereas it's Hindu origins, like you're just in a reincarnation cycle and then you just merge with being. Or um, they might take a good God and project it into a polytheistic worldview and, well, the gods were amoral there's no morality in that those worldviews and so 
can you comment on um, why believing in a theistic God grounds morality, objective morality? Well, yeah, sure, I, I can. Uh, the question is, if there is no God, why be moral? Sure. Why should you be moral? Now, atheists, as you know, come back with the, the urethro d- dilemma, and they say, well, the question is, is there moral truth without God, or is God the one who writes and is the author of moral truth? And so they'll say, if there's moral truth without God, then we don't need to discover have God to discover moral truth, because moral truth is moral mm-hmm. truth. And if there's moral truth because it's whatever God says, then it sounds arbitrary. Well, it's whatever God says. Uh, the answer to that is, as you know, I think, uh, is that uh, that all tr- all moral truth comes from God. But watch, here's the key. But God doesn't do so arbitrarily. He does so because the moral truth is coming out of his own nature. Uh, that I, mm-hmm. you know, he says, "I, the Lord, cannot lie." He's mm-hmm. truthful all the time. Uh, he says, um, uh, you know, he's light, not darkness. The scripture says God is love. And so uh, he does tell us what is right and wrong, what is moral and immoral, but it's not arbitrary. Uh, He's doing it based on his own nature, which, as I said, it's not that God is loving. The the scripture doesn't say God is loving. The scripture says God is love, that Mm -hmm. that is his fundamental nature. Uh, And so Mm -hmm. God is good. Those are fun. That's his fundamental nature. And then he tells us from there what is moral or what is not moral. And so I I don't think that the urethro dilemma stands. Yeah. Okay. In fact, it doesn't. If we are fundamentally selfish, if we are fundamentally sinful and Jesus comes and transforms our hearts, what does it look like to live in freedom and purity um, in our Christian journey um, and to die to our sin? Well, I think we need to take, I mean, as a, a Christian, I like Dallas Willard said this, uh, a Christian is someone who's decided to stop sinning. Uh, and as da- Dallas went on, he, he, he always went by Dallas. As Dallas went on, he said, uh, there's only two possibilities. You, When you become a Christian, you can either decide to stop sinning or you can decide not to stop sinning. <laughs> Those are the only two possibilities. Uh, and a Christian is someone who's decided to stop sinning. Now, that doesn't mean that a Christian isn't, is someone who doesn't sin. If that were the case, I'm not a Christian. Mm-hmm. I didn't make it through the day, but I've decided to not sin. And by that, I mean, I've decided to not allow sin to reign in my life. As as John said in 1 John, he says, no one who is born of God continues to sin because God's nature abides in him and he cannot mm-hmm. go on sinning because he's been born of God. Uh, in other words, your fundamental nature is, is changed about you, where you say, mm-hmm. I, I now want to please God. Now, I'll give you a, a rather personal example, but I'm 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 good with that. Um, uh, year many years ago, I decided that uh, uh, if I ever looked at porn, that I would tell my wife. And I'm talking 45 years ago, probably. Okay. We've been married for in June. We'll be married 47 years. I said, if I ever see porn again, I'll tell you that day. And I'll tell you, uh, boy, I'll tell you, did that make a big difference? It wasn't quite enough. I had to have confessed to her a number of times. It wasn't quite enough. And so, you know, what I finally did is, as I said, you know, I, and I wrote it down. I told the Lord, I said, and I wrote this down. I said, if I ever, I, if I ever intentionally uh, un- click 
on an image of an unambiguously naked woman uh, that I will fast uh, for six a six uh, meal fast. In other words, for 48 hours, I'll have no calories. And I'll tell you years ago, there was a couple of times where I actually engaged in that uh, kind of a fast and went, Oh no, I've done mm. it. I've, I've actually violated my, my principles here. Uh, but um, <clears throat> uh, I, I'll tell you though, that I haven't done that for years. And also, by the way, just in case one comes up and I'm, you're tempted to go, oh, well, it's here. I didn't click on it. If I look at an image for up to over 10 seconds, then I have to do a six meal, a consecutive six meal fast. And so I'm not suggesting that anybody watching your program or listening to your program needs to do that. I am suggesting that you need to do what it takes, that you mm -hmm. need to do whatever it takes to no longer allow sin to reign. I think when Jesus said, uh, you know, if your right hand causes you to sin or your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out or cut it off. Uh, I think Jesus meant it, but now watch this. What he meant was do what it takes. And I guarantee you uh, it's been years since I have intentionally clicked on an image of a, unambiguously naked woman it's been years since i've done that and i still have both hands and both eyes uh i did not have to no dismemberment was involved but jesus mm -hmm. is saying go as far as it takes to no longer allow sin to reign in your life and i'm afraid unfortunately a lot of christians are not keeping a clear conscience on that i think a lot of christians don't even know what it's like you know the scripture says in galatians abstain from sinful passions that weigh mm -hmm. war against your flesh uh, I think a lot of, I know a lot of Christians out there that are watching this go, you know, you, you may not have had a day go by where you haven't felt like your flesh was at war. Well, you need to cut out all the little leaven. I don't watch programs. Uh, I never, I, I've made a commitment not to watch programs if I know there's going to be a naked woman in them. Uh, you know, I don't watch those programs because I, that hurts me. And uh, so Anyway, I think we need to do what it takes. And this is this mm -hmm. is the Christians, a true Christian is someone who's going to uh, say, I'm I can't be this kind of a person. Like one last time. I'm not saying somebody needs to, you know, fast or whatever, but I am saying do what it takes mm -hmm. to no longer allow sin to reign. Yeah. And I also would add to that on the proactive mm -hmm. side, um, is I encourage people the next time you feel tempted with something, pray through it and find a victory in one thing. Like, all right, I was tempted this one time to look at porn. I prayed, I went to bed, I woke up, I'm not tempted now. And that builds a momentum in your life where you find victory over victory over victory. And um, I find I meet Christ in prayer. Um, and do you have experiences like that? Can you talk oh, sure. about your experiences of overcoming temptation? Well, I mean, for me, you know, obviously I'm in prayer and meditation mm -hmm. on God's word. I'll give you an example. I was in, this is 1984 or five. I was a young underwriter in an insurance company. I didn't sell insurance, but agents mm -hmm. in my field, my field was the San Francisco Bay Area, would send me applications for insurance and I'd underwrite it. And I was out visiting agents and, and, uh, uh, this is back, like I said, mm -hmm. 1985. Porn came on regular TV uh, back in 1985. You didn't have to necessarily pay for it or whatever. Uh, but anyway, and this commercial came on for this porn, uh, for pornography that was going to start. And I looked at my watch 20 minutes. I was like, 
Oh, no. I, well, frankly, I wanted to see it. But what I did instead is I started quoting First uh, Peter chapter 1. Mm -hmm. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be mm -hmm. holy and blameless and in his sight, in his sight. And he's given us an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the sal uh, salvation of the Son of Man. And I started quoting that self my quoting that to myself in a loop and praying and saying lord help me and uh because see to tell everybody out there i've got news for everyone that's watching this every single one of you were born to lust you're all born to lust that's the human condition you god created us as creatures with strong desires he could have created us as creatures with weak desires where somebody said your house is on fire we turn around and go oh so it is uh but he created mm -hmm. us with as creatures with strong desires and you're going to lust after people possessions positions or pleasures or you're going to lust after god and his kingdom but you're going to lust what i was doing with those verses especially the stuff about and he's given us an inheritance that will never perish spoil or fade kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by god's power as I kept thinking about that, I refocused my lust mm -hmm. onto God and his kingdom mm -hmm. and off of the images that I've just seen. And what happened was, is I turned, I had already turned the TV off and never, I never turned it back on. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, uh, sure, obviously, uh, prayer and, and, but I would say prayer and meditation on God's word. Uh, mm -hmm. And especially meditation on what he's done for you, because you're going to lust after something. Like I said, mm -hmm. you're going to lust after God and his kingdom, or you're going to lust after people, possessions, positions, or pleasures, but you're going to lust after something. Mm -hmm. uh, one last thing. I think our our translations of the Bible are, I, I wish they weren't quite this way. In the New Testament, if it's a, a, a lust for something, a strong desire for something bad, it's translated in the New Testament. Our New Testament is translated lust. If it's for something good, the New Testament translates it strong desire. It's the same Greek word, epithemio. Uh, same Greek word, but sometimes it's if it's bad, it's translated lust. Mm -hmm. If it's good, it's translated strong desire or urgently desire, mm -hmm. sincerely desire the higher gifts. It's, it's translated desire. I wish it wasn't just because I think it would help people understand that that in mm -hmm. a sense, it's using the same word, lust. You're going to lust after God or you're going to lust after something else, but you are going to lust because God created us as creatures that have strong desires. Mm -hmm. And I think people like Jonathan Edwards really captured this idea that God is beautiful and that all beauty points to God and that mm -hmm. we are invited into the life of the Trinity where you know, the purpose of man is to glorify God by enjoying him. And like there is real joy to be found yes. in the seeking God, living holy, and you gain existential knowledge. If all you do is read the Bible and you don't live it, you a lot of people miss out on knowing God in this lifetime. And I just want to encourage people like don't just hear the word, do it, or you'll become self deceived. Um, and, That's right. And well, can I just you talk about self-deception. I sure can. Uh, <laughs> you know, as as this, Jesus said, you know, is it Jesus? He said, "Do not be hearers of the word, deceiving yourself, but be doers of the word." Everybody, I hear non-Christians even quote this: the phrase, "You'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free." Even non-Christians like that. Sure, That's a nice phrase. Uh, the first part, Jesus said that in John eight. The first part of that is, 
if you abide in my word, then you really are my disciples and -hmm. you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Mm -hmm. I I share your concern, Elijah, and I see it rampant that you have an awful lot of people out there who call themselves Christians. I'm not saying they are not who are hearing the word, but they're not Mm -hmm. doing it. And Jesus says about those kinds of people, many will come to me in the last days saying, Lord, Mm -hmm. Lord. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he's going to say, I never knew you uh, because Mm -hmm. you didn't actually do my word. You just, you were hearing it. You, yeah, you heard it plenty. In fact, uh, okay. One more time on Dallas Willard, uh, Dallas, uh, he says, uh, you know, he brings everybody knows the great commission, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the father and the son and the Holy spirit. And people tend to stop right there. That's the great commission. Uh, Dallas Willard said, and, and then it's immediately followed by what he called the great omission. And the great omission was teaching them to obey all that mm-hmm. I've commanded. Yeah. Uh, and that's the great omission. Uh, and, and I'm afraid a lot of people and of God bought into a gospel of easy believism. Uh, they bought into, uh, you know, hey, I heard it. That's enough. I prayed the prayer. No one has ever been saved by praying the sinner's prayer in the history of Christianity, by the way. Uh, I, I'm not opposed to praying the sinner's prayer. In fact, I just prayed it with someone down the street about four weeks ago. But the sinner's prayer doesn't save you. The sinner's prayer is something when somebody goes, I believe, I say, well, why don't you pray a prayer of repentance with me and commit your life to Jesus? That's the sinner's prayer. But that prayer doesn't save you. But I'm afraid a lot of people, well, I prayed the prayer, I'm saved. Or, you know, I I believe in some vague sense, so I'm saved. No, 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 no. That doesn't make you saved. I'm afraid that, that you actually have to believe enough to change your life. If you don't change your life, you don't believe enough. Mm-hmm. And uh, one more thing. Okay, Dallas Willard, one more time. He said, uh, I took his doctoral course on spiritual formation back in the day. Even though I went to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, I let them take let them have me take it at Fuller. Uh, we had to spend two weeks at a, a living all the students at a convent. But uh, but Dallas Willard said, never tell people to live what they believe because people always live what they believe. And I think that is, uh, again, profound, but people do always live what they believe. Uh, you are always all day long. You are living what you believe about the nature of reality. And if people are doing all kinds of sinful stuff, then they've got something really wrong in their belief system. And maybe it is, well, I prayed the prayer and so I'm saved and I don't need to change beyond that. Mm-hmm. I also think about our own sinfulness. There is this point where there's so many things we omit as American Christians, feeding the poor sometimes. We don't share Jesus with people. And there's joy of God that you experience when you start doing that stuff that we miss out on. And so I think part of that convinces people God's not real or not active in the world when obeying his word is the path to like enjoying god well yes and we need to realize that a lot of it is if god if you don't think that jesus is doing much in the world we are the body mm-hmm. of christ and i think people need to think that through just mm-hmm. a little bit more what does that mean i'm you and I and others, we're Jesus' body here on earth, and it's our job. And we see people who are sick, uh, who are poor, who need our help, and we need to help them. Uh, and uh, so, you know, I mean, I take very seriously my giving uh, money. I, I give money to a rescue mission, and I give money to Voice of the Martyrs because I like some. I like the idea of helping 
people that are being persecuted for their faith and stuff. Uh, how much I give is between me and the Lord, uh, but um, because the Lord doesn't want us to be bragging about that. He says, if you do, you have your reward. But yeah, I mean, the, we're the body of Christ, and we need to reach out and help people as we have the opportunity. And uh, if you do that, I think you'll find that you'll find a lot more joy in your life because the Christian life was not supposed to met, be, be lived by you living a piggy little life where you just sit on your couch every night and watch TV until it's bedtime. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not what Jesus wants of you, and it's not going to fulfill you, and you frankly will not be a happy person thinking that that's where your fulfillment uh, comes from. Where do demons fall in this thing? Like, you know, there's also seems to be some type of persons tempting people. Why are they doing that? Um, what are your thoughts? Well, I don't believe in demons. No, I'm kidding. Uh, I do believe in demons. In fact, I've talked to a couple in my, seriously. I have, uh, Really? I, Tell I, me that story. Yeah, oh, well, I... Uh, uh, you want to really hear the story? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I okay. love this stuff. Uh, in my much younger years, I was, we had a Bible study meeting in my parents' house. It was like 60, 70 high school kids that came to it. And they brought this girl in and she says, uh, and they said, they kind of dragged her in. And they said, she has a demon. And so I went back and went, oh, wow, well, we better take care of this. And, and, uh, so we went back into my garage, my parents' garage, and, and you know, we actually cast it out of her. I, I said, you know, this fellow there, and he says, he says I, I've, I've got its name. And I, and, I, he, and I said, told this gal. And she is, by the way, in the meantime, cursing God and saying, you're all deceived. This is false. In other words, <laughs> she sure looked like she had a demon. And when I said, come out of her in the name of Jesus, I'm not kidding you. She slumped and started crying. Uh, and you know, of course, then I'm like, okay, here's what you need to do. You know, you, you need to start walking with Jesus. Well, some years later, and this is now actually when I was on, on the vineyard staff, the original vineyard staff under John Wimber, uh, I got a call from a hotline center that knew me and I'd been a youth pastor at a large church, a church of about 12,000. And uh, before that, and so they called me and said, this girl's got a demon, and could you come and help us out? Now, in the meantime, uh, I had been reading psychology, and I'd been studying psychology, and I'd been doing it. You know, I mean, I really got into it. And I got into it because in my seminary courses, they started giving us a neo-Freudian gal named Karen Horney, uh, who actually had a lot of insight, but she also had a lot, uh, lacked a lot of insight. Uh, and I was reading Conjoint Family Therapy, I think by Virginia Satir and stuff. But anyway, I was amazed at how much psychology could explain. It just absolutely positively blew my mind at what psychology could explain. And I began to fear, to think that maybe the Christian experience is psychological. Sure. A anyway, I'm sitting in my study at my at our apartment. This is like I say many years ago. I'm sitting in my study and I'm having troubles not thinking that Christianity is psychological, even though I'd had all these experiences before, like casting this demon out of a woman. But I began to wonder if demon possession really wasn't just a psychological event. And I'm sitting in my study and all of a sudden the words come to mind. Uh, you don't know him anymore. Those words came into my mind. And those words really scared me that I didn't know him anymore that I had now lost relationship with him. That scared me. And, and I felt 
I, at that time, I felt a little bit adrift spiritually because I was beginning to think that psychology could explain anyway, any, everything. Well, anyway, so I get this call. It's midnight. Uh, I go to this hotline center and I'm going to heal this girl in the power of psychology. I am. I'm going to fix her uh, in the power of psychology. And I get there and there's this 14-year-old girl uh, that they're keeping, that four people are holding down. They're keeping a, she's naked. I don't know how she got naked, but anyway, she's naked, except they're keeping a a, a, a sleeping bag over the top of her. And, uh, and I'm sitting there, seriously, I'm coming in, I'm going, I'm going to fix this in the power of psychology and all the power. I, I'm going to fix this. And so she's laying on the ground and her head is towards me and I'm walking up to her and her head is towards me, her feet are in the other direction. And she's looking straight up and I, come over the top of her and I look down and my face is about this far from her face. And I look down at her and she snarls at me and says, you don't know him anymore. And I went and she was saying other kinds of blasphemous and terrible things. And I stood up and backed away. And when I'm in trouble, uh, <laughs> I've, I thought I was going to come and fix her in the power of psychology, but that's not happening today. Mm -hmm. And my faith had been so, frankly, damaged by thinking that everything could be explained psychologically, that my faith had been so damaged that I didn't have the, frankly, uh, the faith to say, you know, yes, I do. And, uh, you know, come, you know, come out of her. I command you to come out of her. And I didn't have the faith because now at that minute I've been compromised. I've been seriously compromised. Well, in just about three or four minutes, uh, the room is full of paramedics and firemen. An ambulance crew. I mean, I mean, we're now all of a sudden it's a it's a party, and uh, <clears throat> and uh, uh, they they take this girl, put her on a stretcher, tie her down, put her on a stretcher, and take her to the the, the regional hospital. I fought. I'll fo I followed the uh, paramedic crew, by the way, because I was just curious to see what was going on, and and it was interesting to hear them talk because they were scared. And one guy says to the other, he says, "I've never seen anything like that before." Uh, and indeed, that's the case. Well, you know, in talking to the family, I, I said to them before we, just before the paramedics, I said, what's going on here? I said, well, we were all sitting, this is a hippie era, right? This is the early mm -hmm. 70s now. Or no, this is 80s, sorry. But there's these people look like leftover hippies and uh, early 80s. And um, they said, well, we were all sitting around talking about Jesus. And we kept looking at, at Cassie and we kept saying, Cassie, you love Jesus. And that, and pretty soon that's what, you know, instead of saying, yeah, I love Jesus, she went into this thing. And so we brought her to the hotline center. Anyway, uh, I then had to sit down uh, with, you know, I, I literally went out the next day and sat down on the concrete sidewalk uh, next to the street and just went, where have I gone wrong? Hmm. And it took me a while, frankly, to go, I have seriously gone wrong here because obviously this is not, obviously there is a spiritual world that is incredibly real. And obviously um, it's not going to be healed in the power of psychology. Now I'm not saying there isn't some value to psychology. Sure. I don't, non-Christian psychology has very little value. Although, I mean, they sometimes get some things right, but an old blind sow gets an acorn once in a while. Um, but, uh, uh, but, but there is value in getting good, solid Christian counselor. In fact, it says the multitude of counselors are safety. But 
one of the things is I realized, I said, these psychologists that I've been reading, they may be able to describe a lot of what's going on in, among humans, but they can't tell us how to help them at all. So anyway, I, I haven't ever told that story before on the, on the, uh, any kind of podcast. So there it is. Well, one of the things I really liked about Biola, and I, <clears throat> I was thinking about this as you were talking, is it did a good job of telling students, you critically think for yourself and at the same time yeah. holding and defending a supernaturalistic worldview. Right. Um, and I really valued that. Um, while I was there, I made a, a rule up for myself. I said, I'm not tr trying to convince an atheist with any paper I write. I'm trying to convince myself. And that transformed me. And I thought that was so good about the program um, is it produced apologists who were critical thinkers, but they still had a very robust you know, embrace of supernaturalism, and yet they didn't throw out like, well, there is such a thing as mental health. We've got to keep that. There are brain conditions that cause schizophrenia, and at the same time, there's demonic stuff. And I think one of the tensions that we face in a, a society that's still got it, some modernism and is becoming postmodern is this tendency to throw out the supernatural as Christians, and we oh, just yeah. can't do that, or the mind. <laughs> Well, yeah, as, as you're pointing out, there's there's two possible, you know, I, I like to think a lot of times intellectually on almost every subject, there's two ditches. Uh, mm -hmm. And we we Christians tend to go into one or the other <laughs> instead of go down the middle. Uh, one ditch is, is to say everything's spiritual and everything. There's a demon all over the place. There's demons all over the place and they're out to get you and stuff. Uh, and the other ditch is to say there's no demons at all. Uh, you know, everything psychological, somewhere in between, <laughs> in between, there's demons every place. And, uh, uh, you know, it's all psychological, somewhere in between the two, uh, we need to be in the middle of the road, and not in one of those two ditches. So yeah, I think that's, that's really true. Well, if someone's listening to the podcast, and they go, Dr. Jones, <laughs> I look at myself and I go, all right, I'm sinful. Uh, I think there's a real God. Um, and I am interested in following Jesus. Tell me how to do this. What is the gospel? Well, well, I would say that, you know, that I would tell that person, you need to make Jesus the Lord of your life. And I would do something that I don't think is done enough. I'd say, and that means that you're going to obey what he says, that you're going to do what he says. Uh, you're, and, you know, of course, I would tell them you're not saved by how good you are. This is not a works righteousness religion. But and, and that's where a lot of confusion, I think, it comes in for a lot of Christians. They think, well, wait a minute. And that's the two ditches. I'm either saved only by faith or you're going to say that I'm, you know, I'm saved by work. No, you're not saved by works at all for sure. But your faith will produce works. As I back to Dallas Willard, who said, don't tell people to live what they believe because people always live what they believe. If you believe, if you really believe, you will change your life. And so uh, the conversation I would have is say, you know, you are saved by the grace of Christ, by the work of Christ on the cross. That's how you are saved. Uh, but I would also say, uh, but if you're going to really call yourself a Christian, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake will find it. 
And when you when Jesus said pick up your cross, the only kind of cross that they knew of the they the jewel it wasn't a jewelry. Nobody was wearing a cross for jewelry. No one. Uh, the only cross they knew was where you took somebody and you hung them naked by driving spikes through their wrists and their feet. That's that's how you hung that's the cross they knew. Uh, and then, of course, you would do all your bodily functions that'd be going on on the cross, naked, often for days. That's the cross that they knew. And Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. The Christianity begins with self-denial. Pick up his cross, be willing to do what I ask you to do, and then follow me, which is, you know, you read the word and, uh, you know, meditate on it again. He, as Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words, uh, you know, I mean, and my words abide in you, you'll ask whatever you want, and it'll be done for you. The trouble is, is a lot of Christians do not abide in God's word. They hear it for, you know, 40 minutes on Sunday morning. Uh, maybe they read a passage, but they don't actually abide in his word. And then they go, I don't see why he's not doing all the things I'm asking. <laughs> well, you don't. He said you need to abide in him and in his word. You don't do that. So anyway. Hmm. All right. Are there any closing thoughts that you have or any questions I didn't ask that you would like to be asked? Well, I would just say focus on heaven and eternity. First uh, Peter one thirteen says, being, Peter says, being self-controlled and sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. That's not three commands. It's being self-controlled and sober-minded so that you can... Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Set your hope fully on that. Uh, that is future-oriented, isn't it? I mean, it's. I'm looking forward to what Jesus is going to bring to me. Uh, and also, Colossians chapter 3, 1 through 4, I encourage you to memorize it for the last time. Uh, as Dallas Willard put it, you know, he, he, he told us to memorize those verses. He didn't require it, but he asked us to, and I did. And, and I'm, I'll just quote them. Uh, if you've been raised with Christ, seek those things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above and not on earthly things, for you have died and your life is hid with Christ and God. And when Christ who is your life appears, you will appear with him in glory. Notice the heavenly and the future orientation. And uh, we need to be doing that. Uh, and we need to get off of the fact that thinking of heaven is going to be where we're sitting on clouds and strumming hearts, sporting flightless wings and singing nonstop. None of those things are true scripturally. And I would encourage people in both of my books, uh, my book, why does God allow evil? My book, Immortal, How the Fear of Death Drives Us and What We Can Do About It. I spend the last chapters in both books talking about heaven because people absolutely positively need to spend more time thinking about the glory that awaits them in heaven. Because if they don't, they're going to be worldly minded and their life isn't going to have the joy that it should. Because if you're heavenly minded, if, if your joy is primarily uh, about heaven, one more passage has occurred to me. Jesus said, the 70 returned with joy. And they said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said, yeah, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Nonetheless, do not rejoice that the demons are subject to us in your name. Rejoice that your names are written in the book of heaven. Uh, that's where we need to set our focus. Rejoice that our names are written in the book of life. That's what we should rejoice in. Not being able to even command around powerful spiritual beings. Sure, that's wonderful, but that's not where your joy should be set. Your joy should be set on the fact that your names are written in the book of life.
Well, thank you so much. And I want to highly recommend to any of my listeners, uh, Dr. Jones was one of my professors at Biola. They have a great apologetics program, and you can ask all the hard questions there and work through anything you've ever thought of from creation to evolution to how does the quantum world work and God to what does every religion teach and how it relates to Christianity. And so if you want to be able to talk about Jesus in an intellectual way, to be an evangelist to smart people, I would highly recommend that program. Thank you, Dr. Jones. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for having me on, Elijah.